Uh, let me just pray because I, I feel the need to, to pray before the Lord. So, Father, we pray, have your, your grace upon me just e- even now for my message this morning. Father, Romans 8.28 is such a, a deep and helpful passage of Scripture. I, I pray it would sink deep into all of us. God, that we would genuinely be convinced of these things. God, that it might not just pass by some verse that we know about, hear about, think about, profess allegiance to. But Father, I pray in every way we would embrace it wholeheartedly, God. So show your grace. Oh God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to uh, start this morning by telling you a little bit about one of the most loved children's stories of all time. It's Pollyanna. How many read Pollyanna? You know, who hasn't? Like, who is this new for? Really? All right. Well, Pollyanna is uh, it's good. Um, I'm not sure if you know it or maybe know about it, but it, it, Pollyanna, written in 1913 by Eleanor Porter, tells a story of a, a little girl, Pollyanna Whittier, and uh, she was orphaned at age 11. And so she came and lived with her Aunt Polly in a small fictional town in Vermont. And if you know anything about Aunt Polly, she's pretty grumpy. She's really not too thrilled that... Uh, this vivacious little Stephanie-ish sort of girl is um, coming to live uh, with her, um, but she's got this infectious personality with a joyful outlook on life that, that eventually she won over Aunt Polly, and the story goes, she won over the entire town. Um, before Pollyanna came to town, the town was a bit gloomy, but when she was there, her joy changed everything. And and Pollyanna's joy can be really traced back to her, her dad, who was a pastor, and uh, he taught her to play this game. It's called the glad game. And you play the game by finding something about everything to be glad about. And sometimes it's easy, right? When the, the world is going your way and all is well, it's easy to play the glad game. But sometimes it's hard, like when life circumstances turn against you and and Pollyanna played the game so long with her father, it was almost second nature to her that in all things she would seek reasons of why to be glad. And um, regarding the time when her father died, she did admit that it was almost too hard to play. But here's what she said. She said, that was a hard one at first, especially when I was so kind of lonesome. I just didn't feel like playing the game. And then I saw that lovely picture out the window too. So I knew that I'd found the things to be glad about. You see, when you're hunting for glad things, you sort of forget the other kind. Most generally, it doesn't take so long. And a lot of times, I just think of them without thinking, you know. I've used to play it so long, it's a lovely game. And then she stuttered and said, Father and I used to like it so much. Play this glad game, and it helped her even through her, her time of difficulty being orphaned. Um, now, there's something incredibly scriptural about the glad game. Um, scripture commands us to be glad. Psalm 100, verse 4, shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth, serve the Lord with gladness. That's what Psalm 100, verse 1 and 2 says. Psalm 95, let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. See, when we worship the Lord, he doesn't want glump, grumpy, gloomy worshipers. He wants joyful worshipers who are glad in Him. But our gladness in God must extend beyond Sunday morning worship service or a time when you're reading the Bible. It must be all the time. Philippians 4, verse 4, Paul said this, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Think about it. There's a command in Scripture to rejoice. Not only when things are going well, And we naturally rejoice, but always, even when things are difficult, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. That's all circumstances. And in case we forgot it, he says again, I tell you, rejoice. Paul said something similar in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and 17. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus Christ. For you, God's will for your life is to be always rejoicing, always praying, and always giving thanks in all circumstances of life. And that is the glad game. First Thessalonians five sixteen through eighteen through thick and thin, good times and bad, and the hard times. Even the Bible explicitly says James one two, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you fall into various trials. 
Because you know the testing of your faith will produce endurance. So even when the trials come, the Bible tells us to rejoice in them. In the trials of life, play the glad game. And so Pollyanna, taught by her, her godly father, got it exactly right. In all times, you can find something about everything to be glad about. However, I would say that there's something wrong and amiss about Pollyanna. Um, Our cultures pick this up. You can use Pollyanna's name as an adjective or as a noun. To be Pollyanna-ish is to be like Pollyanna. And Pollyanna-ism is to have this attitude of Pollyanna, right? Positive in in everything and in every way. And that word, Pollyanna, is used most often in a derogatory way. Like people who have this naive simplicity about them, almost foolish, with an over-the-top optimism about everything, even in the midst of terrible circumstances. Those who have just like, everything's okay. Uh, and I feel like sometimes that can be church, right? When, when trials are out there and, and you come to church, you feel like you've got to put on your Pollyanna-ish smile. And um, the, there's, there's, there's a different way, right, about being joyful rather than just putting this glib smile on your face. And I think Pollyanna's glad game fails because it's monodimensional regarding emotion. Right? In other words, right, that they just thought, okay, this is the emotion we ought to have. But biblically, I think that we can have several emotions at the same time. Because emotions are incredibly complex. Think about what Paul said. When he was describing the difficulties of his life, he said this. He said that we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. So just picture that. He's sorrowful because of the, the trials and pains that are coming along. And yet he's always rejoicing. So he's rejoicing in a sorrowful way. Um, I think one of the best illustrations of that was I remember Lincoln Duncan telling the story of a pastoral visit he made to uh, a woman who had just uh, lost her baby, stillborn or just died quickly afterwards. I'm not birth defect. I don't know some some terrible, difficult circumstance. And so he came into the room, and and there was mom, and there was dad, and. And I'm not sure if mom was holding a baby or just looking or or just sorrow, just deep sorrow and sobs were filling the room. And um, I remember Lincoln Duncan telling telling the people he was preaching to about the woman's response. In the midst of her sorrow, she said, let's sing the doxology. And so right there in that room, there were just whatever, four, five, eight voices, where was there? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Let's sing it together. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Just picture yourself in deep sorrow, some circumstance of life. She said, I just know I need to be praising God. And and that's not just the the happy, clappy, 120 decibel sort of song. I mean, that's a very somber, real, that says, I just need to to praise God in all circumstances of life. And And I think that's one reason how Pollyanna got it so wrong, is it just there's this glib happiness but you can have joy that's not so glib. Another error, what makes Pollyanna's glad game so wrong, is it's entirely deficient, entirely deficient of theology. I mean, it's, it's being glad for gladness' sake. No theological foundations were there at all. Um, but provide some theological foundations and provide the right emotion, and Pollyanna gets it exactly right. Because there are theological foundations to be found. And in fact, today we're going to find one of those theological foundations that even in the most difficult of time, we can trust the Lord. It comes from Romans 8, 28. So I invite you, if you haven't done so already, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, page 944 in your pew Bible. If you didn't bring a Bible, just really encourage you to to look on. It's only one verse. In fact, it's easy sort of memorize. In fact, lots of people have memorized it. It's one of the most loved verses in all the Bible, because it contains some of the highest, greatest, and deepest promises of the Bible. And here it is, Romans eight twenty eight, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. In fact, I put it on the screen overhead. Let's just say it together. 
And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. We'll say it again. And we know for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. My message this morning is entitled Secure in the Goodness of God. I get the title really from the... <clears throat> Excuse me. Oh. <clears throat> ah, there you go. Okay. I get my title. <clears throat> wow. I get my title. Wow. <clears throat> it'll it'll work here. It's kind of strange. I just know this is working together for good. Is what I'm thankful for. Um, my message title comes from chapter eight. It's the thrust of Romans eight, right? The the chapter is all about our security in God. And if you look at our teaching slide of Romans that we have up all the time in Romans, there are six words that I've used to outline the book of Romans: sin. Salvation, sanctification, security, sovereignty, and service. And Paul begins the, the letter to the Romans with the idea of sin. And for two and a half chapters, he just delves deep into our sin. It's far deeper than many of us realize. It's so deep that none of us seek for God. And then... The turn comes midway through chapter 3 where Paul presents the reality of salvation. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And our salvation is far greater than many of us realize. And then in chapter 6 and 7, Paul discusses our sanctification, right? The, the fruit of our salvation. How, how, how from that we're united with Christ. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And, and how we, we live in that way. And, but he's real, like there's a struggle in Romans 7. And then in Romans 8, he describes our security. Chapter 1, chapter 8, verse 1. Look right there. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When you believe and trust in Christ, you are totally free of condemnation. You're not ever going to face God as the judge who's going to come and condemn you. The Lord of the universe, the one who's in charge of everything, no longer condemns you because you're in Christ Jesus. And the chapter ends. Look there at the end. These last two verses. Paul speaks about security. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's just a security. That, that we are safe and secure in the love of God. God's not going to condemn us. Verse 1. We are safe and secure. In verses 38 and 39. And really the foundation of our security is the goodness of God. And that's what verse 28 makes clear. That we know that for those who love God. All things work together for good. To those who are called according to his purpose. See when it comes to our lives. God is a good God. He's seeking our goodness. He's looking out for what is good for the people. For his people. And thus my message this morning. Secure in the, the goodness of God. And my first point is this, the promise. We're going to spend most of our time just right here, the promise. The promise is, is easy, right? We know that all things, for those who love God, all things work together for good. Now, this rivals with the, the greatest promises in the Bible. Uh, do you have any promises in the Bible that you hold to that you just think that, that this, is, this is a great promise for me that I like? Any promises, just, just share with some. What are some? <clears throat> a verse that you just say, this is a promise I love. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. And if you do that, what's He going to do? He's going to make your path straight. Great. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. How about another one? Yeah. Psalm 103, verse 11, I think. Um, as high as the heavens are above, we haven't even reached the end of our solar system with any man-made... Uh, and object and and the heavens are so high and as high as the heavens are above the earth that's how great god's loving kindness is towards us it's a great 
It's a great promise. How about others? Psalm 14.1, right? 14.3, 14.1, or is it somewhere in there? John 14. Great, there's the assurance, the promise that Christ is building a house where we're going to go and dwell. Good, how about some more? James 1.12, which says? Yeah. It's just that you rejoice in trials because of what it create, creates in chapter 1. And then by the time we get verse 12, it's like the blessed is the one who perseveres because the crown of life is there for you. So persevere. Here's the promise. How about one or two more? I mean, we could go on for a long time. One or two more. Yeah, Vern, yeah, what do you got? Merely 24 and 4. It says no more crying, no more tears, no more sorrows. Right? But just there's the promise that heaven will contain this happy, joyful place. How about one more? Who's itching to share one? I'm looking for a hand. Yeah, Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it till the day of Christ Jesus. I have several others. I will never leave you forsake, nor forsake you. Hebrews 13. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. No temptation is overtaking you, but such as is common to man. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you confess Jesus Christ as Lord, believe in your, and believe in your heart. God raised him from the dead. You'll be saved. I mean, you go on and on. Uh, but I think, I, I think of all these, Romans 8.28 is one of those that might stand even higher than all of them. Now, your life circumstances, different things certainly help you. But this is one of those promises. I mean, here's the promise that all things work together for good. That's pretty inclusive. All things work together for good. So you name a thing, it's part of the all, and it's part of the working together for good. And uh, so that just says in any circumstance of life, you can have the promise and you can have the assurance that, that it's working together for the ultimate good. It's a, great, it's a great promise. Now, it's interesting here, is it in the ancient manuscripts, there's a little textual variation here. Some manuscripts are different than others, and you can see the difference in the ESV and the NASB. The ESV is like we've been reading. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. And the NASB says we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And the difference, I've highlighted the difference. Okay, um, it's it's just the other phrases are the same, maybe uh, ordered a little bit differently. The ESV is the biblical order. Um, the NAS is trying to keep the, the, the people who receive this promise together. So it kind of changed the word order a little bit, which is okay. But if you look, the NASB has that God causes all things to work together for good. Explicitly mentioning that God is the one working in our life. Where the English Standard Version, it's just all things work together for good. And so you say, okay, well, well, what is it? Is it is it God causing that, or is it all things working together for good? And I just say, all you got to do is just spend just a few moments thinking about it, and you'll realize that these things are saying the same thing, even if the ESV doesn't mention God in the purpose. Because I just I just say this. Well, how is it? So let's let's take ESV, right? All things work together for good. How is it that all things work together for good? Is that like a law of the universe? Like the constancy of the speed of light or like the gravitational field constant, like gravity or the magneta- magnetation working together? Right? In other words, right, is, is, is the universe so composed of actions that just kind of so orchestrated that it all is leading towards good? See, I'm trying to take God out of that. And, and, and you all, all know... That, um, that there's enough sin and evil. It's not working for good. You, you, you'd see that if it would just happen. In order for this all things to happen for good, you'd have to have some type of a deistic fatalism where, where God set everything in motion from the beginning, stepped away from it, and it all is just kind of working out for the good, where it's not just happening. It was all a deistic fatalism is what you have to have. See, in order for all things to work together for good, God has to actively be involved in the affairs of mankind. There's enough sin, there's enough evil things going on. It, it would go evil unless it was God 
guiding and directing in such a way, working towards his plan. So whatever the textual variant is, it all means the same thing because God is the one who's causing all things working together for good. And as believers in Christ, we can be secure in God's goodness of that. Now, that doesn't mean that all things are good, right? I mean, if you know anything about life here on earth, things don't go well. There's massive sin in the universe. There's massive hurt. There is massive pain. But through it all, the assurance of God is this, that God is working in such a way that it is together for good. Even the bad works together for good. So there's lots of modern illustrations of this. Um, <clears throat> storms come and uh, people see the sovereignty of God and see the power of God and see their own weakness and they bow their knee to the creator who is far stronger than anything they'd ever seen before. Or people go into some catastrophe, some financial catastrophe that they have and, and everything that they had was lost in some lawsuit or some uh, whatever, something, some accident, some, and, and they're brought to nothing. And in their nothingness, they seek the Lord. Now, now those things aren't good. Right? Or, or maybe health. Right? Maybe someone's going along and there's a health problem and, and, and they, they don't do well. And whatever, through some accident, you know, some legs are cut off, or arms are cut off. And that, that would not be good. Say some wartime activity. So some, some bad things happening. But yet, there are stories, there are lots of stories about God using that for good. God causing that for good. God bringing that for good. So I mentioned a few weeks ago, Psalm 119, I think it's 67. Um, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word, right? The infliction, God upon our life to, to bring us back so that I was straying before, but then the affliction came and the affliction is good, it's bad, but God uses that then for our good. And there's lots of stories like that. There's fictional stories. I mean, I, I love this one I read this week where there was a, uh, a guy... Um, on a ship, and the ship wrecked, and he's the only one on this island. And uh, he stayed there for several days, and uh, many days, and he built this, this hut out of uh, some driftwood that he found, and he was trying to survive, trying to eke through, and that was the only shelter he had from the, the beating sun, and trying to survive. And, and then one day, for some reason, the, the, the hut blew up in smoke and burned down. And, and he, he's like, what in the world? This is my only protection from the sun. It burned down. And just really questioning God, questioning things. And, and then the next day, this ship comes up to the island and uh, says, uh, how did you see us? And the, and the man said, I, I didn't. I didn't see you. He said, you didn't? Then why did you set fire so that we could see the smoke and come and rescue you? Right? See, right there, there are some things and circumstances like, like that sort of thing. You can have many, many stories about how bad things, seemingly bad things, actually are used of God for good. But I think it's good if we just look at some strong biblical illustrations. There are really two strong biblical illustrations. just want to rest here because they so strongly teach of everything that we see. One is Joseph, and the other is Jesus. So let's look at Joseph, right? Consider the life of Joseph. Here you've got this 17-year-old tattletale. And uh, he, you know, he's... He's out, his brother's doing work in the field, and he's out there with them, and they're doing something wrong, and so he reports back to dad what the brothers are doing wrong. Okay, kids, that's not a good way to gain favor from your brothers and sisters, all right? And he didn't gain favor. Furthermore, Joseph was Jacob's favorite son. He gave him the fancy robe, and his brothers hated him because of his father's favoritism. And to make things worse, he was a braggart. Right? He had these dreams. He had these two dreams that he had. At first, he dreamed his brothers and, and he were out working in the field and gathering these sheaves of whatever, wheat stalks or something, whatever. And, and then uh, uh, they harvested these sheaves. They're all on the ground. And all of a sudden, Joseph's sheaf pops up. And the other sheaves then bow down and worship Joseph's sheaf. And the meaning wasn't lost on the brothers who responded to Joseph in Genesis 37, verse 8. Are you indeed going to reign over us? We read in Genesis 37, uh, verse 8, that they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. His second dream, right, just goes from bad to worse. He told this dream to his brothers and he said, Behold, the sun and the moon, the eleven stars were bowing down to me. 
At this point, even he's turning it against his father. His father said, What's this dream you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? No. Jacob kept that in mind because he loved his son so much. But the other brothers hated him because of it. Irritated to the point that they wanted to to kill him. And uh, even um, jealous of him. And they had opportunity to do him harm. Right When some uh, of his brothers went to the pasture near Shechem, and Jacob sent Joseph out to his brothers, and his brothers saw Joseph coming from afar away, and they conspired against him to kill him. Now, there's a long story, right? but to make it, make it short, they sold him to uh, Midianite traders who were passing by, and these traders traveled to, traveled to Egypt, <coughs> where they sold him as a slave. So things aren't going so good for Joseph. It seems like he put his foot in his mouth, <coughs> Seems like these dreams that are coming aren't, aren't producing any good results. He's off as a slave. First one that he was a, a slave to was a, a man named Potiphar. And uh, um, he, he was there and the officer, he was an officer of the captain of the guard of, of Pharaoh. And, and uh, Joseph rose to prominence in his house. Looks like things are going really well. And he's falsely accused by Potiphar's wife and then thrown into prison. It's like, oh, just when I thought I was getting on my feet. It's not happening. It's not, not good. And even in prison, the hand of the Lord was working for the good. It says, Genesis 39, verse 23, the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it to succeed. And so you think, hey, things are going well. Eventually, he interpreted some dreams for the cupbearer and the baker. And the dreams came exactly as past. But Joseph was wrong by the cupbearer who promised to, to talk to him and give him a good word before Pharaoh. And he didn't until two years passed. And then Pharaoh had this dream that... Um, Troubled him, and no one was able to interpret it. And the cupbearer said, oh, yeah, I know this guy who can interpret dreams. I should have told you about him two years ago. And so he, he came up, and, um, and he had to shave first and come up. Pharaoh told him the dreams, and, and uh, then Joseph then uh, told him the dreams, or the meaning of these dreams, right? With the seven plump cows and the seven gaunt cows, and the gaunt cows eat the, the heavy cows, the fat cows, and then the, the seven ears of grain growing on a stalk, Big, luscious, large, and then the, the others, they're small, the withered ears came up and swallowed the others. So what does this mean? And Joseph said, seven years of plenty, seven years of drought. So find someone, you're put in charge of the years of plenty, <clears throat> so you can have enough during the years of drought. And uh, Pharaoh says, good idea, who can we find? Listen to what he said, though. Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? But he said, Joseph's the guy. Joseph has the spirit of God within him. There's God working, God working, even in this trial of life. And then Joseph is, is king over all of Israel, second only to Pharaoh himself. First seven years, Joseph is in the grain storage business. Then the second years, he's in the grain selling business. At first, right, the Egyptians came to purchase grain. And, and they had so much grain that they purchased everything and made them poor because of their, their Selling everything that they have in order to keep them alive. And so Pharaoh's just getting richer and richer and richer. And finally, Joseph's long-lost brothers come from Israel. They didn't recognize him, but he recognized them. I mean, really, it makes sense why they didn't recognize him. Because uh, he wasn't speaking Hebrew. He was speaking Egyptian. And the story, right, plays out in a marvelous way. <clears throat> and I, I trust you remember how that all worked out. That... You know, he said, what about Benjamin? Sends him back. Benjamin comes. He throws him in prison, whatever. This whole, whole dramatic thing. But it all comes down, Genesis 45, verses 3 through 9. Listen carefully as I read. Joseph said to his brothers, am I, Joseph? I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer to me. And they came closer. And he said, I'm your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years and there's still five more years. And yet there'll be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve life for a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not God. It was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry up and go to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all of Egypt. Come down and do not delay. 
you hear Joseph's repeated emphasis? Joseph, four times, God sent me, God sent me. It wasn't you who sent me here, but God sent me. So you think about that. How is it that God sent Joseph to slavery, to Egypt? I thought it was the brothers. I thought the brothers were going to kill him. And then these Midianite uh, slave traders just happened to be passing by. And then they sold him here and then went to Potiphar's house. And I, and I thought that Potiphar threw him into prison. I didn't think that God ascended him. But see, Joseph understood that all things work together for good. Is that God is causing all things to work together. That's exactly what Paul is is talking about, right? That 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 God is the one who sent him there. In fact, you even listen listen to Joseph's words about the goodness. God sent me before you to preserve life. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a a great deliverance. It's either to keep you alive. You see, God knew all that's going on and he had to get Joseph into Egypt so as to preserve the life of his promised people, Israel. And so he sent him there through the actions of his brothers. Now, Joseph is a, an epic illustration. All things work together for good. Yes, there was sin and hardship, but God was working it for good. And, and, and through Joseph's youthful pride and through Jacob's sinful favoritism, And through the brothers selling him into slavery. And through the unjust accusation of Potiphar's wife. And through the unfaithfulness of the cupbearer. And through the terrible famine, God was working together for good. It's all summed up nicely in Genesis 50, verse 20. So Jacob dies. His brothers come and they're really nervous about how Joseph is going to respond to them. After the death of of Jacob, thinking that he might... Take revenge. And here's what it is. The key verse, the story of Joseph. Genesis 50, verse 20. As for me, you meant e- as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, right? To bring out this salvation. Many people are alive today because of what, what God did. Now, note what this does not say. It does not say, you meant evil against me, but God turned it for good. It doesn't say that. As if God works like this, right? People are sinful and do wicked things, but God's the, the master of working all out in the end. I mean, God has this amazing way of, of turning junk into treasure, Right? That, that things are bad, but, but God is so powerful that he can take all this bad stuff and say, hmm, what a, great, what, ooh, what a great puzzle this is. Let me figure out this puzzle. Let me, oh yeah, 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 here. And so he figures out the master, right, of Sudoku, right, or the crossword puzzle or the whatever, this great logic. He can figure it all out because he's so great. That's not what it says. People think that. People think that we mess it up, but God then turns it for good. But, but look what Genesis 50, verse 20 says. It says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. The same verb is in both phrases, both clauses. You meant evil, God meant good. You intended evil, God intended good. In other words, God was working in and through the thoughts and intentions of the brothers of, Jake, of Joseph. Yes, they were fully intending and fully thinking and fully scheming. And they were intending it one way. Let's get this brother of ours out of here. Let's get him gone. And God was thinking, let's get this brother out of here. Let's get him gone to Egypt. Same thing working in different ways. So it's not, it's not the will of man and the will of God competing. It's the will of man here and the will of God over and against the will of man on top of it, all around it. Working in such a way that it works for good. That's the only way it works for good. Is because he knows of all that's going to happen. God is intimately involved in the affairs of men. Even in the sin of men. Because their action was sinful. And they meant it for evil. But through their sinful actions. God equally was meaning it for good. Another illustration that's almost exactly the same. Is the illustration of Jesus. Terrible. Awful, brutal things were done to him. Betrayed, 
wrongly accused, beaten, whipped, mocked, spit upon, crucified. Terrible, sinful things. Listen, but none of this took God by surprise. It was planned from the beginning. Jesus himself was aware. If you just read through the scriptures, particularly the scripture of Matthew written to Jewish people, how often he says the scripture must be fulfilled. The scripture must be fulfilled. He knew it was going to happen. The night when he was betrayed, he says, It is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. It is written. If that's what's written, that's what's going to happen. He knows because God is working. God, see, see, God just doesn't predict the future and say, I hope it happens. He, he predicts the future and then causes it to happen. He brings it to happen. In fact, and I think it's Isaiah 43, 42, 44, somewhere along that. It says that God causes the visions of uh, the omens of whatever. God causes the visions of omens to, to go wrong. I totally botched that verse up. But what it says is this. Is you've got spirit diviners who are predicting the future. And he says, ha, just to show that they are false, I'm going to make them wrong. He's working in the ways of history. Just like he makes things what he wants to happen. Jesus even said, all this, right? We're just talking about all his death and his scattering and his suffering. He says, all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Upon the cross, Jesus knew full well that he was fulfilling Matthew 22 or Psalm 22, which says, Psalm 22, verse 7, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. That's Psalm 22. That's exactly what was taking place. Jesus knew that Psalm very well. as He's on the cross. He says, Psalm 22, verse 16, they have pierced my hands and feet. He knew what was going on. Psalm twenty two eighteen. they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. That's exactly what he did. Jesus knew exactly what was going on. He knew Psalm 22. He knew he was going to be on, on, the, on the cross when people are mocking him about trusting the Lord. He knew that he was going to pierce hands and pierce feet. He knew that they were going to divide his garments. That's why he quoted from Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, he, he, he understood. And he knew that the end result of crucifixion was for good because it was through the death of the Messiah that many can come to God. If Jesus never died, we'd be lost in our sin. We can't get to God without a a Savior. Jesus knew that it would turn out good. Uh, Hebrews 12, 2. Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that is set before Him, He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. See, the the joy that was set before him, he knew it was there, and so therefore he despised the shame. In in Isaiah 53, speaking about his resurrection, after the the Messiah who had betrayed and was bearing our sorrows, afterwards, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. He'll see his people. He'll see the fruit of his resurrection. He knows of the good that's going to come. And so Jesus understood, right, that, that men are working evil, but God is working good. Same time, you meant it for evil, but God means it for good. That's how all things can work together for good. Peter and John um, were released from prison in the early church, and the early church gathered to pray. Right? And they were so thankful to God that, that Peter and John had been released. And listen, listen carefully what they prayed. They lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything that's in them, right? acknowledging the sovereignty of God, which we're going to get to, chapters 9 through 11 of Romans, all about the sovereignty of God. He said, Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and then he quotes Psalm 2, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And you remember Psalm 2 says, yeah, these people are plotting against the Lord. Let us tear their fetters apart. And God sits in the heavens and he does what? He laughs. He says, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. God's in total control. And though the nations are raging, God is in total control. And they continue on in their prayer. Listen about how total control God is in. God is in. For truly, Acts 4, 27, 28. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. This is God. 
This is against your holy servant Jesus, who you anointed, said both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. God, your holy servant Jesus came. And and Herod rose up, and Pilate rose up, and the Gentiles rose up, and the Jews rose up, all against Jesus. But they did only what your hand and your purpose and your plan predestined to take place. Now listen, Herod and Pontius Pilate did evil against Jesus by not releasing an innocent man, by condemning an innocent man to death. They had the power to release him. And the Gentiles did evil by actually carrying out the crucifixion. The Roman soldiers did upon the cross. And the peoples of Israel did evil by betraying their Messiah. And when, when Pilate offered Barabbas or Jesus, they said, no, we want, G- we want Barabbas. Right? What Jesus? Crucify him. Crucify They rose up and wanted him crucified. They did plenty of evil. But it was all their evil under the sovereign control of God working together for good that Messiah would be crucified, that he would be raised, that we would know life. It says even there, they did whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. And that's how Romans 8.28 can be true. It's not that God is just kind of scrambling afterwards. God is right there in the midst of things, working it all out for His place. And I tell you, that this, this, is, this is where you can rejoice. Even in difficult, dark, bad, evil circumstances, you can realize, listen, there's, there's, God's got His plan and I can trust his plan because he's good. I, I can be secure in the goodness of God. Because Romans 8's been talking all about the suffering and trials and difficulty. Romans 8, 18. <clears throat> I consider the sufferings of this present time. He's talking about the sorrows here. Verse 20. The creation being subjected to futility. And 21. The, the creation is in bondage. 22. We see the whole creation groaning. We see 23. We see us groaning. And in fact, it's so bad, we don't even know how to pray for the suffering uh, because it's, it's so bad, right? The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know how to pray for us we ought. We, things are, are bad and it's, it's evil and it's wicked and it's hard. We don't know how to pray. But the Spirit prays for us. And the comfort comes that we, we can rest in God's sovereignty. He knows what He's doing. And the promise is that yes, it's bad, but our, our God cares for us and it's working out for good. He's causing it to work together for good. He's working in our pains and sorrows for good. And, and then going forward, this, this whole theme of suffering is going to continue on. Look, look at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? You're right, we're secure in Christ. But shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? There he's just listing the things that are going to come. He says, but is that going to separate you from the love of Christ? No, not at all. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are guarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, and through all these things, he says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Right Through God, we're... We're conquering, and it's going to end for the good. A conqueror is the one who's a victor in the end, right? Even through the pain and struggle and, and trial, it's going to be a pain in the end. Through it all, God is working together for good. And that's Romans 8. That's why you know, we, we sang the songs. Uh, we did, right? When, when darkness comes and the, uh, the hardness of, of things. Behind a frowning providence comes a smiling face. William Cooper's famous line, right? Behind the, the frowning, difficult, hard things, there comes this smiling grace of God that is going to work together for good. And that's, that's rightly where the emphasis of Romans 8.28 is. However, this is equally as true in good circumstances of life as well. Is that God works through the good circumstances for the good as well. Right? And so you think about biblical illustration. We've seen Joseph. We looked at Jesus. You know what? You could use every biblical story as an illustration God is working for good. So name a biblical story. We, we were at a father-son retreat just uh, yesterday with Brian Mulder and Dirk and Darren and talked about uh, David and Goliath. There's a, there's a great story, and God is working out David, you know, for the good to conquer Goliath so that the nation of Israel can go well. God is working all things together for good. Another Bible story, just a random one. Naomi and Ruth. Right, to bring bringing back Ruth, and she becomes out of the line of Christ. God is working that for the good. There's God's sovereignty, in fact, all over that story. 
How about another story? Jonah. Jonah. Absolutely, right? He, he's off and uh, he's rebelling against the Lord. But he brings him to Nineveh. And Nineveh then repents. Right? What an amazing thing. God is working in Jonah for the good. For the good of Nineveh, God's people. And you can just take any Bible story because any Bible story falls under the umbrella of all things. So you can rejoice that God is working all things for good. Okay, so, so I close my message here this morning. I've got two more points. Okay, I told you they're going to be shorter than uh, my first two. But here's, here's the first one. And, and we really have to say this. Because God's good plan isn't for everybody. Okay? Um, Goliath didn't face a real good plan. All right? It didn't end good for Goliath. David took his sword, cut off his head. It wasn't good. Um, for, for many people, it's not good. But this verse does speak about who are the recipients of the promise. Look, look carefully there again. Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. We see two classes of people, actually one class of people, that two, um, two ways to describe them. They are lovers of God and they are called of God. So the, the promise of God working all things together for good is only true for God's people. It's only true for those who love God. It's interesting here he didn't say for those who believe in God. It's, it's rather right for those who are trusting in God but then have taken that and understood what, what belief in God works like and have come to love God. These are the only ones for whom the promise holds. Because quite frankly, for people don't, who don't love God, I think you can make a case the opposite holds. For God works all things together for bad for those who don't love God. Because ultimately, even here this is, uh, he's working all things together for good. Um, that doesn't even mean all things are good. That doesn't even mean maybe in this life you're not going to face good. But it's the ultimate good for the end. And it's a good for God's kingdom and for His plan. And ultimately for your glory you arrive in heaven. And, and ultimately for anyone who doesn't love in God, they're going to they're gonna end in hell. And it's going to end badly for them. And I believe that God actually works bad and evil circumstances in their lives. If you don't love God, this isn't, this isn't good. In fact, this is bad news for you this morning. So I just, right, do you love God? Do you want this promise? This promise is for those who love God. And if you're not one of those who love God, just don't, don't believe this promise because it's not true. But it's true for those who love God. And secondly, for those who are called according to His purpose. So you say, what, what does that mean that He's called? Well, helpful to us is that two verses later, He's going to mention the called. And we'll get this next week as we look at the chain of salvation. But Paul continues on, right? About those who are called. He says, right, works together for good for those who are called. And he said, for, I'm going to tell you about these called people. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he may be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Talk last week. This is a chain that can't be broken. You foreknow. I'll do it this way, left to right, right? You foreknow people. These same ones are predestined, and these same ones are called, and these same ones are justified, and these same ones are glorified. It's, it's, it's all this, this chain. You can't like get out of this pipeline like, like there it is. So you say, well, who are these people? Well, these people are the ones who are justified. That is, they've come to faith in Christ. Romans 4, we're justified by, by faith. We're, we're trusting in Him. We're believing in Him, and His justification comes down. That's who they are. These are those who are glorified. These are those who are called. That is, they are the ones who are summoned by the gospel and actually do come. And these are the ones who God had planned all along. And we'll get more into that next week. And um, would be very, very helpful for us. But think about this is this is who the promise comes from for those who love God and those who God is working in their life about. And the opposite is true. Okay. One last point. Here's really the question. Do you know these things? Do you know these things? Look at how verse 28 started. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who call according to His purpose. Right? The idea here is that, is that Paul said, yes, we know this. 
Now, what's, what's so interesting about this is what I've said today, some people find controversial. Some people say, I don't think that about, you know, God causing all things to work together. I, I don't think. And, and some people are struggling. Do you believe Romans 8, 28? But this isn't talking about do you believe Romans 28? This is talking about have you embraced it and do you know it? And is this deep in, into your heart? Because this knowledge here isn't like, oh, yeah, I know that promise. Now, this heart, this promise here is a, is a deep, yes, I know it, I trust it, it is mine, I've got it. And Paul's kind of said, matter of factly, that, that we know, I guess my question to you is, is, do you know? Do you know this? If your child dies stillborn, are you going to request to sing the doxology? That's when you know it. Or when your child dies in an accident and you go to identify your child's body and you say, let's sing the doxology. Or when financial catastrophe hits or your home burns down and you're sitting there among the charred remnants of your home and you say, let's sing the doxology. That's when you know it. Or when you get diagnosed with with cancer and, and you're there with your spouse and you find out that, whatever, you got six months to live and you say, let's sing the doxology. That's when you know that you know this verse. When, it's the, when the difficult times of life come, when you have that bedrock faith that just says, I know that God is using this for good. And, and what's interesting here, Romans 8.28, we don't know how that is. I can't tell you all the circumstances. I can't tell you why or how. that. God is the one who's, who's mastering over everything in these all things. I don't know how it's going to happen, but if you really know it and you trust it, you will sing the doxology in your time of greatest deep despair. And you can play the glad game with Pollyanna, Pollyanna, in a right way, not in just some, some glib way, but in a deep, trusting way that you really know that these things are true. And they're founded upon the chain of salvation, 29 and 30. And we you see in Romans chapter 9, it's all founded upon the sovereignty of God, that God is orchestrating far more in history than we would ever see and understand. So not only do you believe it, but do you embrace it and do you know it? And is it passionate it deep in your heart that all things are working together for good? So let's pray. Father, I would pray, God, in your grace, you would help us to embrace these things. God, the trials of life are deep. Um, God, I, I think of the, uh, the sorrows that come upon this world, and it's devastation from earthquakes, or it's devastation from hurricanes, or it's illnesses, or it's conflicts, or it's accidents. And, and yet, God, that's all in your hands. And Lord, I, I would pray that we as a so body of believers here at Rock Valley Bible Church would be so deeply ingrained and deeply set on your goodness, God, and the outcome of the, the goodness of all circumstances, that we would love these things and know these things and embrace them. I've just seen people who do that, and they live incredible lives of stability. God, so give us security in your goodness, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.